All right, welcome back to the Obigano Wino podcast. This is one of a number of episodes that I prepared and recorded while I was in Oceanside, California, waiting on a primate that went the distance. Did have a home birth, did transfer for pain management, and that's just a part of the deal sometimes. But I waited and waited and waited and waited, and I didn't even get to use any of my supplies for the most part. But in the meantime, while I was waiting, I was reviewing these practice bulletins every single week, guys, here at the Obigino Wino. Going to be reviewing, summarizing one of the practice bulletins or committee opinions from ACOG. And, uh, we're, you know, these episodes could be, I mean, I could just read the whole thing to you, but instead I'm summarizing it. So you're going to get a little speckling of the highlights from these practice bulletins in each, each episode. But if you want the full show notes, worry not. It's in blog form at my Patreon account, which we'll link here in the podcast description. Um, for $5 a month, you get access to all of these summaries. And uh, and in the written summary documents, you're going to get a lot of, there's a lot of studies linked. There's a lot of graphics and other tools in order to help improve your practice and your care for your clients. So we're going to talk about prediction and prevention of spontaneous preterm birth. This is Practice Bulletin 234, which was published back in August of 2021. It replaced a very old practice bulletin. I don't even have the number anymore, but there's been a lot of stuff that has changed within our the realm of, of um, predicting and preventing spontaneous preterm birth, especially when there's a history of, for example, 17-hydroxyprogesterone. McKenna is how it was marketed. Um, when I was in all of my training, um, that has since been, um, the FDA has removed its approval as, uh, or its indication, let's say, approval for the indication um, of McKenna for prevention of preterm birth in a current pregnancy when there's a history of, of preterm birth. So anyways, let's, let's get started here. There's five pearls that you should know. And before we even do the five pearls, preterm guys is considered before 37 weeks. If it's less than 34 weeks, that's when we really get worried. Somewhere between 34 and 37 weeks, babies, you just never know how they're going to do. There's a lot of good reasons to give, you know, um, steroids and whatnot, but we don't necessarily do, you know, even talk about tocolysis, even if the waters are open at 34 weeks, the conventional model, ACOG's recommendations, most OBGYNs and midwives are going to be, at least if they're in the system, are going to be recommending inducing. Um, but we should be thoughtful about this because babies that are born before 37 weeks can have a very uh, hard time transitioning because, you know, remember our due date or guest date can be off, give or take two weeks because it's based on a 28 week or 28 day cycle. And unless you know for sure when that embryo implanted, it's a little hard to say when your, your guest date is. So a, at 34 weeks, you might actually be looking at a 32-weeker. You might also be looking at a 36-weeker. Likewise, for 37 weeks, it could be a 35-weeker all the way up to 39-weeker. And honestly, I've even seen it, you know, I've, I've seen certain situations in which it's more than two weeks in each direction. So these um, models that we use are not perfect. But at any rate... We want to try to keep babies in the uterus for as long as possible because that's where they're going to be best nourished in preparing for their journey through the pelvis coming earthside. So the five pearls, 
first preterm delivery, which is going to be abbreviated in the notes as PTD, at less than 34 weeks carries higher mortality and morbidity risk to newborn in, in um, the delivery process as well as um, long-term morbidity. Two, history of PTD is the greatest risk factor for PTD in current pregnancy. Duh. History tends to repeat itself, especially in pregnancy. And of course, if we haven't done anything from that previous birth to the current birth, then why would we expect something different to happen? Number three, progesterone supplementation can be considered regardless of history of PTD. We're going to be getting into that one in depth. Number four, in patients with a singleton pregnancy and history of PTD, cerclage should be offered if the cervical length is less than 25 millimeters, as detected on transvaginal ultrasound at 16 to 24 weeks. And then number five, my favorite, omega-3 fatty acids, low-dose aspirin, lifestyle modification, and smoking cessation are also important considerations in decreasing our national PTD rate. So a little background here. Rates of preterm delivery in the U.S. have actually been pretty stable. Um, this is a direct quote from the practice bulletin. Although risks are greatest for neonates born before 34 weeks, infants born after 34 weeks but before 37 weeks are still more likely to experience delivery complications, long-term impairment, and early death than those born later in pregnancy. So just because a person makes it to 36 weeks and that's arbitrarily your cutoff for, let's say, attending an out-of-hospital birth, we have to consider all of these things and counsel on all of these possibilities, albeit, albeit low for a 36-weeker compared to, let's say, a 34-weeker. Some of the known risk factors for preterm, preterm birth, of course, we've already mentioned, prior preterm delivery increases the risk by up to twice. A short cervical length, um, we generally use less than 20 millimeters if no history of PTD or less than 25 millimeters if, his, if prior history. Management, we're just going to look at 25 millimeters going forward, but you know, if you find somebody who, um, you know, has had, let's say it's their first pregnancy, and then you incidentally do an ultrasound, and you find, oh my gosh, their cervix is short, and it's less than 20 millimeters, you have to at least consider, is this person going to have a baby way earlier than we thought? We don't have a ton of data on that, but you just have to be thoughtful about it. If you develop a vaginal infection in your pregnancy, you're at risk. Vaginal bleeding in pregnancy, you're at risk. That includes that first trimester random bleeding. You can call it implantation bleeding. You can say maybe it's a uh, subchorionic hematoma. Bleeding predisposes you to preterm birth. Significantly significant, statistically significant increase in risk. A UTI in pregnancy, especially if it's not treated, treat UTIs when they develop, especially if it's positive on culture, treat it. Periodontal disease in pregnancy. This goes back to the Weston A. Price Foundation and the and what we can glean from a person's dental and gum oral health in general and their overall health. Um, interestingly, treatment is not going to necessarily normalize risk if you're developing frequent UTIs, if you have frequent vaginal infections, if you have frequent periodontal infections or diseases. Treating them doesn't necessarily normalize the risk, but it does improve the chances that you will not deliver as early as you would otherwise if you didn't treat. Low maternal BMI is a risk factor. Smoking, substance abuse. If there's a short interpregnancy interval, generally considered 18 months, that's a risk factor. So these are just risk factors. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's a slam dunk. They're just risk factors. In case you were wondering, the history of leap or cold knife cone for cervical dysplasia has not been found to be a risk factor after all. Um, scar tissue is a different story in labor itself, but preterm delivery, not necessarily. 
It's also important to remember, as a risk factor, race plays into this, as with everything. White women have the lowest rate, 9%, Hispanic women, 10%, American Indian and Alaskan Native women, 11.5%, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander, 118 and the highest rates, as always, are seen in black women, 14%. So who should be screened and how? The purpose of screening, guys, is to identify patients in whom an intervention will be helpful. If you're not going to intervene, why are you screening? If you're not going to act on labs, why are you ordering them? If you're not going to act on an ultrasound, if it's, in other words, if it's not going to change your management, why are you looking? That doesn't mean we shouldn't look. But the question needs to be, why am I looking? And based on what I find, is it going to change my plan? This is how we keep costs down. This is how we keep, we keep fear out of our, our, our clients' heads. The only patients who really qualify for screening are those with a history of prior um, preterm delivery or P-prom or if they have multiple babies in there. But, of course, multiple babies like twins and triplets, they're going to probably come early anyway. Egg-hug does feel it's reasonable to screen universally because 5% of all women could potentially give birth preterm. There was a giant systematic review, which I have linked in the show notes, that looked at 14 studies, and that found that a cervical length less than 25 millimeters before 24 weeks, um, before 16 and 24 weeks of gestation, had a sensitivity of 65% for preterm birth. And that preterm birth is defined as before 35 weeks. Does that make sense? There's a positive predictive value of 33% and a negative predictive value of 92, meaning if you have the short cervix, 33% of the time, it's going to you know, lead you to, to be worried about preterm delivery. If it's not short, there's a 92% chance or greater that you're not going to have um, that you're not going to have preterm birth. Now, we're looking at PPV and NPV. It's not quite that simple the way I just described it statistically. But just know that if the cervix is normal length, you probably are, are out of the weeds. Um, so the way you're going to screen is you're going to get a baseline transvaginal ultrasound. If they have multiple risk factors, get the TVUS, and then repeat this evaluation every one to two weeks to assess for change. But there's a very limited data on the time, data on the time interval. Some people say one week. Some people say two weeks. you got to pick. <laughs> the data is limited. Um, when you're measuring, anybody out there, granted, a lot of midwives listen, you're probably not doing the measurements yourself, but if you're an OBGYN resident, if you're a practicing OB, measure three times and go with the average. Get three different looks, take the probe in and out if you have to, take three different looks, measure three times and go with the average. There are a lot of other screening modalities that have been recommended like fetal fibronectin screening, BV screening, home uterine activity monitoring. None of them have panned out as useful predictors of PTD in an otherwise asymptomatic woman. Um, so there are some recent um, studies, some, some, some new data that suggests it might actually be cost-effective to universally screen for shortened cervix in patients without a history of PTD. I've got two studies linked in the show notes. Um, but for now, ACOG states that it's reasonable to offer, but not necessarily recommended universally if you have no history, um, which seems like it's in conflict with what I said above, but all that ACOG is saying is it's reasonable to offer because up to 5% of women could potentially give birth preterm. Do you have to do it? Are you going to be criticized for not doing it if they don't have any risk factors, especially no history of PTD? No, probably not. I put some in images as to how to measure cervical length, curving your calipers um, along the length of the cervix to make sure that you're actually giving them the full benefit of the doubt.
So what can we do? If we think a person's, you know, at super high risk, right? Well, we're going to be doing our screening. And based on their history and based on what you're finding on your physical exam or ultrasound, there's going to be a variety of different options. Table one from the practice bulletin is, is clutch. It's called Screening and Interventions for Prevention of Preterm Birth. So on the left side of this, you're going to look at the cervical length ultrasound, right? If, there's a single, if, if this is a singleton pregnancy, no prior preterm birth, um, at least look at the cervix once between 18 and 23 weeks, okay? If you find that the cervix is shortened, let's say less than 25 millimeters, vaginal progesterone is reasonable. Injectable progesterone, that's the IM-170HP, that's the McKenna, it's not indicated. Is a cerclage indicated? You could consider it if you notice on speculum exam that that cervix is dilated and opening. You could consider it. What if you just find this on ultrasound, though? There is really not that, lot, not that much data. There might be a benefit if it's really short, like less than 10 millimeters. So this is for singleton pregnancies, no prior preterm birth. Let's say you have a singleton pregnancy and there um, has been at least one spontaneous preterm birth. You're going to be measuring the cervical length anywhere from one to two weeks up to even four weeks because, like I said, the data is mixed. Start screening at 16 weeks and repeat at whatever interval you decide with your client um, until 24 weeks. If you find that... Um, Regardless, you, you, you can offer progesterone supplementation because they have this history of PTD. That can be either with McKenna, the 17-OHP injectable, or vaginal progesterone um, as a means of preventing. But like I said, that's an off-label use. The FDA no longer approves it for that indication, but a lot of us got used to using it. And I honestly do think it made a difference, but the bigger data sets have clarified that maybe not. Um, progesterone supplementation um, vaginally can also be helpful. Um, but let's say that like they're not on McKenna, right? And then you incidentally find, well, not even incidentally, you're probably going to be looking for it, that the cervical length is less than 25 millimeters. You could consider, um, vaginal progesterone in that case. If the ultrasound does show a cervical length less than 25 millimeters, um, you could consider doing a cerclage. Um, but of course, also consider progesterone supplementation with or without the cerclage. You could also consider a cerclage if there is a physical exam that shows an open cervix. That's the physical exam indicated cerclage. And then lastly, multiple gestations. So we should be looking at least once between 18 and 23 weeks at the cervix. Um, injectable progesterone is not indicated without otherwise finding that there's some sort of shortened cervix here. There is insufficient data to, to guide vaginal progesterone for twins. I certainly don't think it could hurt. Um, insufficient data for ultrasound indicated cerclage, which is when you see a short cervix, is that sufficient reason to put in a cerclage? We know that babies, uh, multiple gestations come early. Who knows? Um, if you find that their cervix is dilating, consider. I have a friend who went to Brad Boots Taylor after multiple visits with different doctors in Atlanta. She had die-dye twins. She went and, you know, her cervix started shortening. She ended up having slight dilation. Nobody would help her. She was at like 25 weeks. Brad B placed a cerclage. She went to 37 weeks and had two perfectly healthy kids. 
So it is there. There's just not a lot of data. So consider doing these things. Now, cervical pessary has come up recently. It is not indicated for any purposes to prevent preterm delivery. Maybe that'll change in the future. Um, if we want to talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about this, these singletons with no history of, of uh, preterm delivery. This has been extensively studied as a means of risk um, to reduce the risk of preterm birth in asymptomatic women who have a short cervix. So there was an, a meta-analysis of five randomized trials of vaginal progesterone versus placebo in patients who meet these criteria. Um, and there was no other risk factors. They used a standard definition of a short cervix of 25 millimeters or less, and they looked at a ton of patients. This is a huge study. So patients who were treated with vaginal progesterone did have a significantly reduced risk of any preterm birth before 34 weeks and spontaneous preterm birth. Um, yeah, spontaneous preterm birth before 34 weeks, meaning um, when we say any, we're talking about other indications, obstetrics indications, where we would iatrogenically induce or deliver um, women at, at, at before 34 weeks, which is kind of an unlikely scenario. And, and, and I mean, it's less likely that that would happen, honestly. But if that does happen, vaginal progesterone does seem to be helpful. Um, let's see. The authors of this meta-analysis, they calculated that you would need to treat 14 patients to prevent one spontaneous preterm birth before 34 weeks. Remember, we're talking about 34 here, not 37. Um, and so you can, you know, if, if you were going to use vaginal progesterone, I use 200 milligrams per vagina nightly. That's probably the best studied reg regimen, and that's the one that I think really helps. So what if there's a history of preterm delivery? So before the prolonged trial back in 2020, there was a meta-analysis published um, in 1990 that showed demonstrable evidence of the benefits of McKenna, the 17-OHP, in preventing recurrent PTD. Sorry, I'm drinking a little shake. Um, and that led to this giant multicenter RCT of 463 patients that were randomized to receive either 250 of the McKenna IM or placebo, starting between 16 and 21 weeks. And... Um, they found that it reduced, you know, this administration weekly, uh, which is about tw uh, 250 milligrams weekly, reduced the rate of preterm birth before 35 weeks by at least one third. So that led ACOG and SMFM to recommend this intervention universally. That's what I trained with. That's what I saw throughout. Then the prolonged trial arrived, and that evaluated the efficacy of McKenna 250 IM weekly compared to placebo on preterm birth and neonatal morbidity among women with a singleton pregnancy and prior spontaneous preterm birth. So this was a large, multi-centered, double-blind RCT. They had enrolled, um, well, they, they looked at eight, over 1,800 eligible women and enrolled and randomized 1,740 women. They found no statistical difference between the two groups. So in their primary outcome, remember, is birth before 35 weeks. So would it prevent it before 37 weeks? Maybe, but that was their that was their endpoint, or that was their their primary outcome. So back on April fifth, twenty twenty three, as I mentioned, the FDA withdrew its approval of seventeen OHP for preventing preterm birth due to the results and the conclusions of the authors of the prolonged trial. So, um, you know, data is going to continue to roll, and if anybody ever says the science is settled, run. It's not. 
it's never settled. There's going to be more and more data. Um, but in the meantime, SMFM, which is the sort of ACOG, but for MFMs and high-risk OBs, they um, are discouraging clinicians from using um, IM-170HP off-label. So now that the FDA has withdrawn its approval, we're not supposed to be using it. Unless, and if you do use it, you're using it off-label. It's just a part of the deal. We use a lot of drugs off-label. So, um, so you should still screen cervical length every week from 16 to 24 weeks and offer a cerclage, um, reasonable to offer cerclage, as I mentioned, if the cervical length is less than 25 millimeters. Um, but this intervention, it's important to remember, has been best studied in those who have a history of preterm delivery before 34 weeks, not in that weird gray area of 34 to 36 and 6. So given that this, that this data is most supportive um, as an intervention for women with a history of preterm delivery less than 34 weeks, it is also reasonable and far more cost-effective and easier for your clients if we just forego cervical shortening screening altogether, unless you have that history. So that's, I think, a really, really important point here. All right, some additional notes on cerclage. I actually um, will link a nice little National Library of Medicine summary here by Bieber and Olson in the show notes so you can read a little bit more. But in general, when you find a short cervix on ultrasound, we like to place these when there's no history of preterm birth. Um, I'm sorry, when there's a history of preterm birth. So there's really uncertain efficacy if there's, you know, without that history. There may be some benefit, as mentioned, if you have a very short cervical length with no history of preterm delivery, and that's defined as less than 10 millimeters, again, on serial ultrasound. Get three measurements, find the average, and go with it. If you have an open cervix on physical exam or even on ultrasound, um, you may have uh, somebody who just has true cervical insufficiency. And um, if it's found between 16 and 23 and 6, they're a candidate for what we call a physical exam indicated cerclage, also known as a rescue cerclage. The data is mixed there. It is unclear if the addition of McKenna, the 17-OHP IM progesterone, 250 milligrams weekly, in addition to a cerclage, is better than either intervention alone. And also, as an, an, an interesting side note, this comes up a lot, can you place an, a, a cerclage after 23 weeks and 6 days? There's no data that necessarily you know, suggests that this is a terrible idea. This idea of placing it no later than 23 and 6 is just expert opinion. And because cervical insufficiency is traditionally defined as painless cervical dilation in the second trimester, this um, restriction has presented no issue when viability did not begin until the third trimester and indeed may have arisen to encourage the treatment of patients with threatened preterm labor with cerclage. But now that we have better means of keeping these 23 plus weakers alive in the NICU, it seems that we haven't invested any of our time, resources, or our research into um, preventing babies from coming like in the 24, 25 week mark. So what if you did find it, it was borderline at 23 and 6, and then at 24 and 6, suddenly now you've got an indication. It's, I think it's very reasonable to do that, especially if you're going to have a 24 week and 6 day baby, let's say, that's going to require tremendous amount of life support and then we'll probably have some degree of disability come later in life. This is where my palliative care training comes into play. Like, 
Just because we can keep these babies alive doesn't mean we always should. A lot of parents may decide not to, but we in the medical system are sort of taught that like, if the baby dies, it's a failure. Well, there are worse things than death in some cases. I won't get into that any further here, but it is an interesting quandary. So let's say that like your institution doesn't have the NICU capacities, or let's say you're in a foreign country that doesn't have a NICU like you have across the street from your Mecca hospital system. Wouldn't it be reasonable to consider a cerclage versus having to care for a 25-week and six-day baby, and you don't even have the means to necessarily do that? So it's very, very little data to continue this conversation. I did, um, a lot of this is paraphrased from an article that just came out in the Green Journal. It was either this month or last month. Um, it was great. It was really a reflection on what has changed or where are we now that we've withdrawn, the FDA has withdrawn its approval for 17-OHP IM, um, or the indication for 17-OHP um, with a history of preterm delivery. So... Um, there are three types of cerclages. Just to make this clear, it seems very confusing. It was very confusing to me in my training from med school through residency. Ultrasound indicated is what we've talked about. You see a short cervix on ultrasound, vaginal ultrasound. History indicated is when you have that very rare circumstance in which a woman has true cervical insufficiency. Again, it's very hard to diagnose. And then physical exam indicated, also known as a rescue cerclage or an emergency cerclage. This would be op you know, an option if cervical dilation is beyond two centimeters, either visualized on speculum or you can even just see it on ultrasound. And this is all at less than 24 weeks based on the, quote, expert opinion. If you know nothing about what cerclages mean, like, like what the technique actually is, well, they all use this really, really heavy-duty mersaline suture. It is not going to degrade. It is like tying off... Uh, tying your shoe with paracord, that paracord is not going to break. So no matter what technique is used, when a person goes into active labor, you have to remove the cerclage. Otherwise, the cervix will, the pressure of the baby's head descending, when it will shear through the cervix, leading to all sorts of bleeding issues, it can be a gnarly mess to fix a cervical laceration. So the three different types are McDonald's, Sharadkar, and the transabdominal. The transabdominal is either done laparoscopically or opening, or I'm sorry, as an open procedure, where you place the suture in a purse string fashion. You can Google what that looks like. Um, at the cervicoismic junction, junction, meaning you can't get to it from the vagina. You have to be inside the abdomen. Um, essentially, if you have this type placed, you're going to need a C-section. So that's the one type. Now, the other two can be placed vaginally. does not mean that you need a C-section. They're both done under regional anesthesia. The McDonald is a purse string technique at the cervicovaginal function, so that junction. So that's on the um, the vagina side of uh, of the of the uterus, so to speak. Um, empty the bladder, um, and you place this purse string um, suture. The Sharadkar is placed after you've drained the bladder, and then you've actually um, dissected the bladder upwards and off of the where you're pla planning to place the suture. So this goes a lot higher, and that can actually be very advantageous. So some other options we haven't really talked about are means of mitigating the comorbidities that are contributing to iatrogenic preterm birth in our country. So low-dose aspirin 
has been demonstrated in some studies to prevent preeclampsia and thus prevent the indication for atrogenic preterm birth when you develop preeclampsia at 35 weeks, let's say. Um, tighter control over BPs and chronic hypertension may also decrease our atrogenic preterm delivery rates nationally. It's also important to remember that funneling hasn't been found to be significant um, as, an, uh, as a risk factor for PTD. So as long as the cervix looks long, the funneling is not really a part of the equation in general. There have been a bunch of other things like endomethacin or antibiotics, um, activity restriction like bed rest, pelvic rest, or supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids. The randomized controlled trials um, have not found them to be, I don't know, for whatever reason, useful. But like, is there a downside to using omega-3 fatty acids? Of those three, that's the one that I'm, I'm most thoughtful about. I don't think so. Um, there was a 2018 Cochrane review that showed that fatty acids have a variety of benefits in, in pregnancy. So maybe if, you're, if you have a really, really poor lifestyle, poor diet and all that, using omega-3s won't work. But what if you've got all the other stuff dialed in, you're doing some regular movements, you've taken care of yourself, there's not a short, inter in, uh, not a short interval between your pregnancies. So omega-3 fatty acids are going to be great. They're great for pregnancy anyways. So, so why not? They're critical for the development of the, of the baby's brain and nervous system. Stop smoking. That's a big giant one. That'll that'll decrease your risk of preterm delivery. Decreasing allostat allostatic load. Now this is all of the stressors, right, in our environment, including the type of food we're eating, the junk that's in our soil, our water, our air, um, financial stressors, relationship stressors, all of that, including our inegalitarian society, um, our racism, the bigotry all of the bad stuff that's in the news. Talk about like all the negative, nasty stuff that was being circulated during the years of COVID that hasn't really stopped. All of that will predispose you to preterm delivery. So you gotta kind of take care of the temple while you're pregnant. And if you're a clinician listening, you have to take care of your client's allostatic load. And that can mean a variety of things from environmental to lifestyle to whatever. Even the way that you talk to them and hold them and touch them can be really, really soothing. Treat UTIs and vaginal infections when they arise. That's great. Maybe avoid licorice root. There's some evidence that they may contribute to PTD. And then, of course, some herbal remedies. Um, they're not really remedies. They're more like, anecdotally, we have found that they, they may decrease the risk of recurrent PTD, false unicorn root, wild yam. Um, Uva ursi, but that's kind of indirect through flushing the urinary tract to make sure the bugs don't crawl up in there and cause some inflammation systemically. And then, of course, if you have a history, a history of PROM, check electrolytes, do a hair mineral analysis. These are techniques that Sarah Rosser, my partner, has um, you know recommends to her clients. Do we have the data to support it? No. Will it hurt? No. So just have a conversation with your clients. You know what I didn't do is I didn't feature a bottle of wine. So this episode is brought to you by um, Locations California Red Wine, the blend. It has a big giant CA on the front. They have a French blend. They have all kinds of others. That's the one you want to get when you go to the store next time. It's delicious. I actually just finished a bottle of this with my man, Nick Capitanakis and Encinitas, while I've been here in... Oceanside, California, and it was it was really good. Neither he nor I drink a lot. I mean, I used to drink a lot more, but now that I'm 
grown up and with kids and everything, we're not, not doing the wine and beer thing as often. All right, guys, that's it. Remember, support, support the Patreon page. I'll put the link in the description here. And, um, and you can have access to all the show notes and the links and all this other stuff. So in the meantime, do no harm. Take no shit. We'll be covering a new topic next week. I'll see you then. California red wine, the blend. It has a big giant CA on the front. They have a French blend. They have all kinds of others. That's the one you want to get when you go to the store next time. It's delicious. I actually just finished a bottle of this with my man, Nick Capitanakis in Encinitas, while I've been here in Oceanside, California. And it was it was really good. Neither he nor I drink a lot. I mean, I used to drink a lot more, but now that I'm grown up and with kids and everything, we're not, not doing the wine and beer thing as often. All right, guys, that's it. Remember, support support the Patreon page. I'll put the link in the description here. And, um, and you can have access to all the show notes and the links and all this other stuff. So in the meantime, do no harm. Take no shit. We'll be covering a new topic next week. I'll see you then.